You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for joining me, Sharon Noonan, on tonight's Best Possible Taste. Tonight's show is going to start off with the ever-popular slot with Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, who has lots of questions that you have sent to him to answer. I'll be talking to Martina Calvi about her family's unique ackle lamb, taking a trip to Tralee Institute of Technology to the Food for Thought event, and butcher Tim McCarthy will be here to talk about the pick-in-a-day course he is running in Canturk, County Cork, this weekend. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie, or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, short for Queen of Organisation. But before you do, let's bring Ron Forrestal in and crack open some wine. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, you're very welcome this evening. Thank you, Sharon. And you were very creative this week. You asked people to put questions up on Facebook and you got a great response to it. Yes, yeah. I thought it was important that we try and answer a few questions with people that they, they may always have in the back of their mind, but got the chance to air it on the show. And I think that nice magnum of wine that you're going yeah, to raffle absolutely. at the end of it is, was probably a nice incentive. But we'll get straight into it because there were quite a few questions. And we're going to start off with a question from Mary B. Sullivan. And she wants to know about the dent on the bottom of the bottle. She says that we're always having a debate on this at work. How do some wine bottles have a large dent on the end of them and others don't? Is it a sign that it's a good bottle of wine or not? Well, uh, it's uh, th- that dent on the bottom of the bottle is officially called a punt, as in P-U-N-T. Um, it has a couple of purposes. Its main purpose is to strengthen the bottle. Um, if you don't remember, if you take a bottle of champagne, they'll have a very serious punt on the bottom of them because of all the pressure in the bottle. So there's that reason. Um, and the second reason is sediment, uh, particularly with uh, clarets, good reds, Italian good reds, that the sediment is dispersed on the bottom of the bottle and not left in one place. But just as a general rule, which is the easiest way to, to work it, that those uh, bottles with that dent or punt in the bottom of them are quite expensive to buy. So anybody who puts something into a bottle that costs that much, the quality is going to be pretty good normally. If you take your 7, 8 euro bottle of wine in the supermarket and just run your thumb underneath it when you lift it, it won't have anything. Because they couldn't afford to spend that kind of money on those bottles. So that's as the question has asked, generally it's a fairly good quality product that's going to have it at the start but it has a purpose so it's not a case of it it's making the wine more expensive it's a good quality wine and it justifies that expenditure absolutely. on it absolutely okay I hope that's answered that for Mary B Sullivan I'm sure it has next we're going to move on to a question from Peg Nash who sent her question in by text and she wants to know can you suggest a nice dessert wine something not too sweet I suppose dessert wines do have a reputation of being quite sweet they do um, like the traditional dessert wines are from France uh, like Sauternes Muscat de Bonne de Venise who tend to be very sweet tend to be very syrupy almost you know they, they don't pour like, like wine does normally they're a little bit heavier in consistency I'd, I'm not the hugest fan of those for, as, as Peg would probably be alluding to there as well it's, they're pretty heavy pretty hard to drink but there's new world ones out there which are fantastic um, from New Zealand, uh, Australia, Chile, Argentina, even South Africa, are all producing one. Now, we have one on, on, on our portfolio of wines from New Zealand called the Ned, which is a Sauvignon Blanc botrytis, which basically means they leave the grapes out an extra three weeks out there, so they virtually shrivel up, and instead of getting, you know, probably a half a teaspoon of juice out of a grape, they're getting a drop out of a grape. So it's, uh, it's that bit more expensive for that reason. But it's beautiful. That Ned uh, Late Harvest Sauvignon Blanc is fantastic. Really nice. And nice and light, not near as heavy. For portion size, you wouldn't, you'd take a sherry glass size of that as opposed to like a normal wine glass size. Exactly. Like a double sherry, like a, a schooner glass. That's the official measurement for it. So if you take a, a normal glass of wine, it's a third of that. That would be your standard measure. 
for dessert wine? So a bottle of it, the Ned, how much is in the bottle of that Ned dessert wine? It's not as much as is in a normal bottle of wine, no, is it? it's a 375, which is a half bottle of wine. But you'll a half bottle of, of dessert wine will cover eight or ten people, no problem. Well, I have a question then about that, and it actually brings us on nicely to the next question from Peg O'Donoghue. How long does wine realistically stay drinkable once the bottle is open? Is white longer lasting than red, one variety over another, etc.? And is the price on the shelf ever a good indicator of quality? Before we come to the price issue, so that dessert wine, whenever you'd open it and you're saying it will do eight Mm. or nine people, you really want to be keeping something like that for a dinner party scenario. You would. Now, standard wine, uh, red and white wine, uh, will start to deteriorate within a few hours. Um, Like by the following day, it'll be questionable enough uh, whether it'll be anything like you had uh, had it the first day. Um, now, it'll be drinkable for two or three days, but it just won't be anything like it was when you opened it up first. Dessert wine, because of the sugar content, will last that bit longer. Um, you'll probably easily have it in a fridge for six or seven days, and it'll be pretty good all the time, but generally because of the sugar content that's in it. But for regular wine, I'd, I'd suggest just, just drink it. Don't leave it at all. Now, the thing is that the better wines will deteriorate more. The the cheaper ones haven't got that much to lose, so they'll be better. They'll last that two or three days. But um, if I could suggest using half bottles instead, you know, for, for, for that revenge that you'd have a couple of half bottles, I think they're a great idea for that reason alone. And then about the price on the shelf, ever a good indicator of quality. You've talked before in the show here about the tax yes, aspect yeah. of wine, and obviously the cheaper the, the wine is, the more tax is course, going yeah. there to the government so that means that what's in the bottle isn't as good a quality as a more expensive bottle. It is. Now it's it's very it's it's very difficult to gauge it from a customer's point of view because of the of the some of the mad pricing that goes on in supermarkets, as in products that are priced up with the with the idea of dropping the price significantly at some stage, as in they'd they'd like to sell them at sixteen or seventeen euros a bottle to be able to sell them at half price of eight euros in a month's time. Now the product was never worth sixteen euros and it was never sold anywhere in real life for sixteen euros. But a lot of that goes on to justify those kind of drops. But price price is is, is an indicator, there's no doubt about it. But it's it's more what I, I'd say it's it's more finding a product that or a brand, particularly a producer that you trust more than anything else. And I don't mean just because they're a very big brand, but if you get a nice range of, you know, a New Zealand product like, you know, Oyster Bay would have been in the past, but it's a very big brand. Um, but would have changed seriously over the years from being a really, really nice product to being a mass-produced product. Like, they were producing wine from their own vineyard at the start, and now they're producing enough wine that, would, that half a Marber in New Zealand wouldn't produce it. So, you know, you'd wonder... Isn't it funny the way you say that? Because there are wines there like Oyster Bay that I did used to really like mm. and now I don't like them. And I thought perhaps I just had had too much of them, that I'd gone off them. But what you're saying is it's not the same wine as it was five or six no, years ago. It, no, and I, I sold Oyster Bay uh, in a job that I had 15 years ago and when it was brought in the country originally. It was a fantastic product produced by Brent Maris, a very small producer. Um but it was just it was just taken on, uh, bought by a bigger company, um, taken on and driven on, which means it's not their own winery. They're buying wine. I don't mean to say anything about Oyster Bay now. There's another 50 examples um, of, of companies that have done exactly the same thing. And the product is very nice. But at the price it's been sold, you couldn't possibly produce it to the levels they were 10 or 15 years ago because of at the just the low price that it sells out on an offer. But there's a load of other examples of that as well. As I wouldn't pick on that one in particular. You could nearly compare it to an artisan food product that is made in small batches by hand and Absolutely. then the company is bought over by somebody that wants to take it to the next level. Well, they can't continue to, to make small. No, absolutely like not. That. Yeah, and they're not flexible. Think about wines in the past that were small produced. They'd change in year to year, as in they'd improve them or they'd, they'd have a good year or they might have a year that wasn't as good. They might sell off their graves. They mightn't have half as much wine as they would normally have to sell because they wouldn't sell it if they didn't feel it was good enough. Whereas if you get into a big company scenario, that's not going to happen. The wine is going to be sold one way or another. And they make it all very generic. It's like buying a McDonald's in Argentina and buying a McDonald's in Spain. They're going to taste very similar. And that's the reason behind big brands is that when you buy a bottle of Australian Chardonnay with a particular brand name on it anywhere, 
it's going to taste exactly the same whether it's 2012, 13, 14 or 15. Okay. Well, the next question is from Kim Morn and she says that her husband thinks it's better to buy wine from as near as possible, i.e. the less travelled, the better. Is he right? Also good for the carbon footprint, I would have yeah, thought. Yeah, absolutely. So is buying wine from France better than buying wine from Australia or New Zealand? Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, just for the, for that reason, for the two reasons that that Kim specified on yourself is that the first of all the less traveled is the better because if you have if you're importing wine from Chile or Argentina or South Africa it's spending four or five weeks in a container on a ship um, with very unusual temperatures depending on what time of the year you're operating on and uh, coming in and shipped around and, and hopped around from one transport company to another till it reaches its destination whereas if you take something in France uh, like for example you're picking up some stuff in France um, uh, today there's four pallets being picked up at the winery uh, that's coming to uh, Paris um, Dublin and Limerick and it'll be here by Friday morning Is it flown or does it come by boat? Oh no all by boat you couldn't it's too expensive to fly Just when you said I went to Paris <laughs> So that's why it goes to a clearinghouse in Paris. <laughs> it goes to a clearinghouse in Paris. Everything goes through there. I see, okay. So, it's uh, it's great. It, it's it's very quick. Uh, it means that somebody my size can take in a number of products um, in in relatively small quantities instead of shipping huge containers from somewhere, which gives you a huge choice. It gets you to deal with people that you wouldn't normally deal with. And what's the impact on price then? Surely, if it comes from further away, it should be more expensive. That there's more transport costs on it it's just quantities you see if you're going to ship from from chile you're going to ship in a 20-foot container which is probably going to be cheaper than it coming from france okay all right one more question then and it's kim Morn has mentioned this but also maria noonan and kim says in italy our neighbor made a red wine that he served in the summer it was fruity but fizzy Mm. Do you know if there's a similar wine here? And Maria actually also talks about that. She says, Hi, Ron, I was gifted a sparkling red a few years ago and loved it. Have never come across it since. Yeah, they're pretty hard to find. Um, I sold one um, uh, 10 or 15 years ago again, a Graham Beck uh, sparkling pintage from South Africa, and it was lovely. It didn't sell now, and it was discontinued even when I was selling it at the time. And they had a, a white version, which was very successful. Um, now, the, the Italian one, there is a number of Italian ones there. They tend to be Lambrusco. They tend to be lower-level alcohol sparklings, um, which, you know, Lambrusco is very nice to drink. If it's drank really cold. It's really nice. It has a, it's not like Prosecco. It's not near as bubbly as Prosecco, but it has that effervescent uh, fizz in it, which is very nice. But Lambrusco do a load of them. There's a load of them there in red and rosy. Uh, now, I, I would I, that wouldn't be my taste now, but it's it's because uh, it's hard to chill it too much, uh, and then it's not cold and it just doesn't give the same. But okay. but uh, talk to your neighbour, you might get another bottle. <laughs> and I was reading during the week that prosecco has overtaken sales of champagne in the world. Yeah, I'm not surprised, yeah. Not surprised, yeah. As I have to say. So that's all the questions we've time for. Thanks to everybody that sent questions in. There's a few more there, and I'm sure we'll have more for next time. We'll we'll add those on. We'll start with those the next time. But before we go, you're going to do the draw very quickly to find out who has won the, the yeah. magnum of, just pronounce it there for it's me. Dogajolo. It's an Italian um, from Tuscany. It's really, really nice. And this is a double bottle, so it's, it's a large bottle. So we've taken all the people who, who post it and, and text in and put them into a hat. If you want to draw it, there. Okay. Sharon. And the winner is Peg Nash. Congratulations, oh, Peg. I'm sure Ron will get your details and he'll get that bottle to you as soon as possible for you to enjoy. And thanks again to everybody and to you, Ron, for coming in this evening. No problem. Thanks to everybody who got in contact. It's great. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Ron from Forestal Wine Merchants and to you for sending in your questions. And if you have a wine question for Ron for his next visit, you can email it to me, s.noonan at live.ie, and I'll put it to him when he's next in studio. Still to come tonight, I'm out and about and meet Martina Calvi of Akalam. And butcher Tim McCarthy will be here to tell us more about the pick-in-a-day course he's running in Conturk, County Cork, this weekend. 
Next, though, is time to head in the Tralee direction where the Food for Thought event was held. You might remember that TJ O'Connor was on the show a few weeks ago telling us about this event in Tralee Institute of Technology. Well, I was delighted to go along to it and when I was there, I got the chance to meet lecturer Morris O'Brien and student Ida Ryan. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Morris, tell me what your role is here in Tralee IT. I'm a lecturer in culinary arts and currently I'm lecturing with third year degree students uh, in food product design and food product development. And that's what we have here today with the showcase. It's the culmination of their product design, product development module where they have to come up with a concept, a food concept, and then create it and then have a tangible product at the end for a showcase event. And there's lots of tangible products here today. Tell me about some of them. It's fantastic. We have, um, like all our students, while they're nervous doing it, but they've brought their own little taste to it. So we have a Q marinade, which is created by one of our students. That's a spicy marinade for uh, meats and burgers, but can also then be used, we say, as a barbecue dip as well. And when we say spicy, we don't mean overly hot, but lots of combinations of flavours and seems to be very popular today um, with all the people sampling marinated and chicken wings and stuff like that. And then we also have then a curry sauce um, that's made purely homemade, no um, additives, no preservatives inside in this, and it can be a vegetarian or then meats added to it, so it covers all the range of people's tastes. We have Bell's Biscuits that we're looking at today and these are biscuits designed with again no artificial sugars, um, no added sugar, no added salt and they're designed for actually two to five year old children with those in mind. Um, and simply because they're more of a natural biscuit. Yes, they are sweet, there is a natural sweetener inside this, um, but removing the processed sugars out of children's food really, and that's what we're looking at. And then we also then have a cookie dough um, style product that you bake at home, you buy it raw, but you bake it at home. And again, it's all natural product that's inside there. Again, no added sugar, no added salt, and it's, a really interesting bundle center it allows the customer or the potential customer to actually cook at home but the product itself the technicality of the product is made for them and they just cook at home and then our last but not least product that we have showcasing today is a gluten-free diabetic friendly biscuit all right again with no um, gluten added in and natural sugars inside of it. So when we say diabetic friendly, we don't mean there's no sugar in it, but it's natural sugars that are used and a reduced sugar content inside there. Um, very interesting concepts by the students. They've been working hard for basically 20 weeks on this. And when they first came into the program, these concepts only developed since they've been on the program, so they, they never had these concepts before. And to see them here today with tangible products, it's, it's excellent for the students. And it gives them a real sort of, I suppose, action learning, you could say, event to actually have something to produce at the end of it. Now, you said earlier about potential product. I would imagine that the dream would be that these products would be on the shelves at some stage. Absolutely, and we've had great support and help from some of Kerry's finest producers here. That three of the producers came with us today for our students and are showcasing with the students. But they're also then here to ask the students questions and to give the students help with their products that have been successful. And that's the whole idea at the end of it. So we have um, Hartis who make their uh, award-winning savoury jellies. We've got Blarini Bloster, the Little Dingle Food Company, again with their preserves and jams. And we have John Harty from uh, Fab Fudge. And they came deliberately to show the students that from concept to actualization or commercialization can happen. It takes a bit of time, a bit of work, but it's events like this that will help them to, I suppose, live their dream if that's what they wish to do. And in the past, can you tell us about any product that started here in the IT and is now on the shelves? Well, funny enough, we, this is only our second year of our degree programme, and we've got the first year degree programmes last year, so they're doing their final fourth year this year. But we have two of those, I would suggest, will be on the shelf 
in a very short space of time. Um, I would say within the, six, the next six to nine months. Can you All tell right. us what they are so we can keep an eye out uh, for them? I, 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 yeah, I don't want to put them under pressure, but I would say there, there, there might be a shellfish sauce on the shelf. And there's also potential again for a, a gluten-free, um, lactose-free um, energy bar okay. on the shelf. Very well. exciting. All right. we'll keep so an eye hopefully, out for hopefully we'll see. Uh, but again, they're finishing their fourth year this year, so time is the issue there with them. But um, they're good. They, they, they've kept in touch, and, and they look as if they want to um, go ahead with those products. Some of the products that are here today, you've, you've mentioned a lot of them are maybe sugar-free, gluten-free, salt-free. Are you finding that that's something that is becoming increasingly important when students are involved in product development? Absolutely. Um, and even as chefs, because all these students start off as chefs originally. Um, and we know the trend that's, I suppose, it's not so much a trend, it's the fact that people have more knowledge today. Um, that intolerances are top of the agenda, allergens are top of the agenda. The law changed recently in January with regard to allergens. It will be changing again next year with regard to calorie counts. So people are just more educated and more conscious and more aware of their own intolerances. Um, so there's gaps in the market for that. And the whole key with a product is to find a gap in the market and fill that gap. And if, you know, it is predicted that maybe by 2030, 2035, about 20% of the population will have an intolerance or an allergen of some sort. It's not pie-in-the-sky stuff, you know. This is really what's been there for years, but people haven't really looked at it deeply enough. And these gaps are there for potential food companies to fill those gaps and create these products. The large food companies are doing it. So if they're doing this, it means it's worth doing. And that's what you have to fill and see can you find your niche inside there. Morris, great to talk to you. I must go and give some of them a little taste now and see what I think. Absolutely, and I hope you enjoy them. And give the students feedback as well because they can only become excellent at what they do through good feedback from customers. And that's the idea we have. And thank you very much for the interview this morning. Ida, you have a fantastic product here, Bell's Biscuits, a snack for toddlers on the move. Why is it the perfect snack for toddlers? Because it's actually sugar, it's got no added sugar and it's got no salt. So it doesn't have the same effect on a toddler as a sugar high. And it's going to be individually packaged so they can hold a little package themselves. And it's a treat, but it's healthy. You say there's no sugar in it, there's no salt. That makes it sound like it's not going to taste it's so good. It's actually fabulous. It's got cinnamon, golden raisins, and there's some fruit juice in it to sweeten it. So although it's it's no added sugar, it is sweet. How long did it take you to develop it? I've been developing it since... I have a two-year-old daughter, so that's where the idea came from, trying to find products for her that were natural, that were that were that didn't have the sugar added to them, and that were handy to take on the go. So I had the idea, and I've been developing it since last September. So you went through lots of different permutations. Yeah. Let's just say, to begin with, it definitely tasted sugar-free. <laughs> but it's moved on, and it's come out quite nicely now. Will I have a little taste? Do. It's soft. I didn't expect it to be soft. soft. Yeah, yeah. It's easy for a toddler to eat, and it's not messy, and it's um, tasty. I hope. Hmm. And there's is it raisins in it? Did you there's say? There's golden raisins in it. So a golden raisin is plumper than um, the normal dark raisins that you're used to, and um, it also makes it a bit more moist. And then there's a little bit of cinnamon in it as well, just to add a bit of flavour. You have milk here to go with it as yeah. well. Is it's that like, the perfect accompaniment? I think it is for any toddler. It's cookies and milk. And as far as a child is concerned, they're not going to know that it's not got added sugar. So you're giving them a treat still, but it's just a healthier one. So what do you do with the parents that like it? <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> Sell more. <laughs> they're eating, they're yeah. eating them instead of the kids. I think it's always good if the parent can have the same thing as the child. Yeah, definitely. Because the child always wants what the parent has. Definitely. What are the next steps for you after today? I'd like to keep going with the product and obviously it's still in the beginning stages. So to get some positive feedback today was great. And let's hopefully more, see more of me in the future. 
Good luck with it. I hope now to see it on the shelves very soon. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's programme. If you've just joined us, we heard earlier from Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants. And just before the break, I was chatting to Morris O'Brien and Ida Ryan at the Food for Thought event in Tralee Institute of Technology. Some great products being developed there that I've no doubt will be on the shelves in the near future. Never fear if you've missed some of the show as it will be up in the best possible taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And still to come tonight, I'm expecting butcher Tim McCarthy to be here to tell us more about the pick in a day course he's running this weekend. But next up, it's an interview I did a few weeks ago when I was in Galway. The lovely Martina Calvi met up with me to tell me about her family's business, Ackle Mountain Lamb. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Martina, you're from Ackle Mountain Lamb. It's a family business. Tell me how it all started. Uh, in 1962, my father, Martin Calvey, um, opened his slaughterhouse, as they were known at the time, abattoirs today, um, because he had this idea that he would uh, slaughter his mountain lamb, Ackle Mountain Lamb, as he called it, for the growing number of tourists who were visiting Ackle in the 1960s. At that time, um, the predominant meat that was eaten was mutton and hoggish. Uh, by local people. It would be put on for long hours uh, cooking whilst people were out in the fields and doing their work and when they came home in the evening you know the meat was still relatively intact and um, you know it was soup and the nutrients were there and whatever. So my father's idea was very different and it was quite radical really. Um, He had been a postman as a young lad and had um, you know met a lot of these people who were visiting Ackle and he learned that they had a problem sourcing meat. So he had a flock of sheep and he wasn't just interested in them. In fact, his sheep are his his passion. It's something that, you know, he, that's what he does, what he's very good at. And he was enterprising. And he then decided that he would open up a slaughterhouse and slaughter his lamb. And it was a hit with the visitors. And uh, so much so that he opened a butcher shop and um, we used to make out signs for the front of the shop every year, you know, telling people about our Ackle lamb and to keep a space in the bush uh, to bring a lamb home with them. So it was really artisan, you know, back in the early 1960s. This was artisan as a word that we use today, we hear today and we understand the meaning of it. But back then, I suppose my father didn't even know of the word artisan, but that was the very thing he was doing. He was raising his his lambs in a very genuine, honest and pure way. You know, the purity of the air, of what they eat, the water, um, that it was his honest day's work. Um, that he crafted the the lamb when it was butchered uh, to to butcher it, and uh, you know he cut it and so on um, for the tourists and put, wrapped it and all of that. So that was the early stages, I suppose, of the beginning um, of Ackle Mountain Lamb and this idea. And I suppose you know that's when you when you are very proud of your product, when you really believe in your product. And, and my father did. He knew he had something very different, and that was. Um, you know, the taste, for example, you know, when we say Ackle Mountain Lamb, we are talking about Mountain Lamb, which is distinctly different uh, to the regular lamb, say, in the supermarkets and whatever. Um, it's very different, you know, in a number of ways, but particularly the flavour and the taste of it. It has a very distinct and different taste. And that is what set, you know, my father's lamb apart and today for example you know it's over 50 years later and as a family we're quite a large family there were 10 of us and you know we were a hard working family and um, today we still raise we have a number of farms and we raise the lamb in Ackle uh, we have the abattoir in Ackle the only abattoir in Ackle the licensed abattoir that belongs to the Calvies to, to our family 
and we also have the butchers as well. So within our family, you know, we have, I have seven sisters and myself are eight and I have two brothers. Um, some of us are female farmers as well, as well as the men. And I have a sister who's a female butcher uh, and my mother has been involved in the business all her life as well. So some people would say that springtime is the best time to have lamb. Would you agree with that? Well, you know, the mountain lamb is is, um, is different in that way. And I suppose this is nature at its best. This is the miracle of nature. How, you know, when you stand back and you see how with mountain sheep, for example, the mountain yos, how their cycle um, is different and that, you know, um, they come into season or they're put with the ram much later than lowland uh, yos, for example. And the lambing then begins, like our lambing hasn't started yet and won't maybe for another two weeks. Um, but nature has designed it that way, that the yos don't lamb until there is, you know, sufficient forage on the ground to feed the yos because the mountain sheep live out all the time. They have evolved over time. You know, we are the sixth generation of our family, hill sheep farmers. And um, over time, you know, the, the mountain breed, this Mayo mountain breed, that's the breed of sheep we have, they have evolved, you know, to survive really on harsh landscape, um, maybe harsh weather. Uh, they're outwintered all year round. They're not brought in for lambing or anything else. So, you know, in that way, that's nature. And we work in tandem with nature. And our lamb is, you know, the gift of nature. Um, we don't um, manipulate it in any way. We don't try and influence or change the flavour. We don't use preservatives or additives. Uh, we don't bag feed. Um, you know, it's all pure and genuine. Does that mean that they're a very low maintenance type of animal to keep? Well, in terms of the maintenance, I suppose we are a very, very busy family, I have to say, in the sense that, you know, we have quite a large flock uh, of yos. And it's not by accident, for example, that, you know, sheep farmers from all over the country will come to my father, you know, hoping to source breeding yos from him. Um, over the course of, like, to 50 years for example my father through selective breeding you know I mean regularly you know every other month we bring in the O's and uh, what we have to do is we have to always we're conscious of having to cull out and uh, maybe the O's for example we examine you know if there's broken mouths for example if there's problems with hooves if we have yos that have difficulty lambing we're all the time trying to refine the flock so that you have a very very healthy flock um, you know that they are um, you know a first class example of the breed type and the breed specification so in that way you know there is a lot of maintenance people you know might think there's nothing to you know hill sheep farming and you put them out and that's it but it's not so for us for example in Ackle you know the sheep um, they can graze on thousands of acres of op open commonage and the way we work it is that you know we're very much aware for example of maybe trace elements that are deficient in one area um, and so on and you know other maybe nutrients that are more prevalent or generously you know there somewhere else so all the time you know we might rotate and move the flock um, for example our yos would make it down to the shore and they would graze on the um, seaweed uh, which is full of nutrients and iodine and whatever and all of that so in that way you know you have to bring them in you have to shear them um, you bring we bring them onto the sandy banks for example to put them with the rams so that we can keep an eye on the rams and on the yos as well um, so you know every other month we have them in you know then we kind of you know we have to take away the 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 old lambs and you know we bring them on as hogged yos um, the lambing time, for example, is just so busy and very stressful as well. Sometimes, you know, you do, you're, you're left with pet lambs, for example, as well, and you're trying to rear them as well as maybe out on the ground trying to make sure that the, that the yos are lambing safely. You talk there about refining the flock. Whenever you bring them in and some of them don't make the grade, what happens to them? Well, what we do is we could cull them off. You know, sometimes you will have um, uh, farmers will come and specifically look for those kind of yos. Okay, they're not yos that we keep in our flock, but I mean they're 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 not um, they're suitable for somebody else. You know? like, would they be used for mutton, for example? Well, I I, I not really particularly, and I don't think in the sense you know mutton is not really, it's not as popular here as it is in England, for example. It, it really has made a comeback. Um, but, you know, sometimes they just want to have them maybe for, you know, for breeding on and whatever and all of 
that and you know raising the lamb and selling them on or whatever whereas for us it's very important that if there are genes that are presenting some deficiency or some defect you know it's it's important to us that we do cull that out from the flock and whenever you're breeding is there a preference for male or females to be born well you know for us you know it's they're equally valuable in the sense that like yo lambs for example you know they we, we retain them in the flock, you know, and, and all of that. And, and the weather lamb saying is we, we, we slaughter and we, we sell as the Aclamantin lamb, you know. And, you know, some of the... Um, some of the uh, ram lambs, for example, we would we would keep back. Uh, we're very particular about the kind of ram as well. Like, we will always source particular qualities in our rams as well, purebred mountain rams, you know, to cross with the O's. So, um, you know, all in all, look at... Um, it's a 50-50 breakdown to be honest you know what age would the lambs be whenever they're slaughtered well what we do is we our season of the new season lamb typically starts in July you know maybe the first week in July we'll try and have some ready for that and um, you know from there on then the lamb is available you know, and it's available right up until Christmas. Um, so we have like that is the equivalent of what spring lamb for lowland lamb. You know, it's summer lamb in in mountain lamb, and then we also have you know the Christmas lamb as well, the winter lamb. So um, and with the lamb, for example, you know it's taken directly. We wean it from the mother. You know, um, so the mother is grazing, for example, on the wild herbs and the grasses and the seaweeds and the heathers and all of that, and that that um, enriches the milk with the particular flavours. We say it's the flavour of Ackle and it is, you know, in that way it's an eclectic mix of all of those and that is what flavours the lamb meat, you know. You sell online so it's available all over the country. Yes, it's available all over the country um, and you can telephone, we're 0984315 and my sister Gronya will take you through all about the lamb and about the cuts and the joints and we cut it exactly to how you want, we'll find you know out how many are in your family um, you know we'll take you right through for example with the shoulder you know whether to leave it in the one piece, whether to bone and roll it, whether you'd like it all cut up into maybe casserole or stir fries or whatever. Uh, we take it through the legs, you know, again, do you want it butterfly, do you want to put into a shank and fill? We take it right through it all and explain um, and that. And it averages, you know, I mean, the thing about our Acklemanton lamb is because we raise it, we slaughter it, we butcher it, we dispatch it, the whole lot, label it, all of that. You know, we try and keep the price down, you know, that we, in, in that way, you know, we can do it you know, more reasonable and we try to do it as best value, give the best value to the, the customer as we can. So it averages about, um, you know, maybe seven, eight euro a kilo. And I mean, that is very, very reasonable for lamb. If you go into any of the supermarkets and just pick up the packs of lamb and just, you know, out of interest, just see what you're paying per kilo for lamb, you will realise the excellent value that comes in a box in Mountain lamb. And just to say as well, like, it is a very lean product. Like, it, it's a product that's endorsed by Slimming world okay so it's very lean so there's very little waste in it you know so it is excellent value for the consumer and it comes all packed and labeled and we also now have a recipe book as well a nice handy easy to use easy to follow recipe a collection of recipes i've put together some from chefs some from people that you know in the area who had particular ways of cooking the lamb and whatever and just some information about ackle and things like that so we have a nice recipe book that we put in as well and um, you've it all packed into your freezer it fits into your freezer it fits in maybe two drawers of a three drawer freezer and um, you know it has a long uh, life in the freezer you get it totally fresh like we don't it's not it's not um vacuum packed or air flush gas flushed or salted or anything like that you get it pure and natural and then you can decide you know you put it in you can freeze it and whatever and all that okay will you have a web address that you're going to give out to the listeners yes we have a web address which is www.calvesacklemountainlamb and calves is spelled c-a-l-v-e-y-s so calvesacklemountainlamb dot i-e 
and .ie. And just to remember Calvi's, you could think of Calve Wine, and that's C-A-L-V-E-T, but we're C-A-L-V-E-Y. Very good, Martina. Thanks so much for talking to me today. You're very, very welcome. And we look forward to hearing maybe from some of your listeners if they have any queries or would like to know more. And just to say, if anybody is visiting Ackle at any stage or plan to, we're delighted to receive. We have an open door uh, policy at our home and at our shop and at our farm. Often people stop off. They want to know about the lambs, know about the sheep, talk to my father, talk to us. And we are delighted to receive people free of charge. Lovely. Okay. That's a very warm invitation. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break you heard me talking to Martina Calvi all about Ackle Mountain Lamb. Earlier in the show Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants was here and I was out and about in Tralee Institute of Technology at their Food for Thought event. And you can listen to those interviews again later in the week when they go up on The Best Possible Taste podcast which is on soundcloud.com. So tonight we visited Kerry and Galway and when we were in Galway we were talking about lamb but my next guest hails from County Cork and he's going to talk to us about pig. A big welcome to the best possible taste studio to butcher Tim McCarthy. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Tim thanks for coming in this evening. Thanks for having me. A pig in a day butchery course. What do they learn? Tell me all about it. You learn everything from the in the dark arts, from nose to toes. Everyone's doing nose to tail, so we're doing nose to toes. Um, it's aimed towards foodies, chefs, people who are looking to keep pigs in the long acre. Um, show them the skills that are involved. Try and teach them some of the techniques. Show them some of the recipes, and basically unmask what goes on behind the scenes. Are there any regulations when it comes to having a pig and then slaughtering it? Does that have to be done in a certain environment? We're not actually slaughtering the pig on the day because you wouldn't be able to bring in 15 people on the the day to do it. Plus, you'd you'd have to be doing it on a Sunday. You'd have to have a vet there as well. And they don't like working the Sundays. Not many people do, I'd say. But this is this is for fun. It's for hobbies as well as as different people that are maybe in a culinary profession like chefs. Where we realised the need for it is we had a lot of people coming in, and the first question out of their mouth was, "What's the difference between pork and bacon?" So the the knowledge base was was pretty low with people. Um, people seemed interested. We did a couple of demos. We did one at Electric Picnic. We did a few at at a couple of other places, and people were were interested. And they said, "Oh, you should do this in a in a on a day and and bring bring everyone in." And there was there was and is a market for it. People people go on bread making courses. They go on cake making courses. They're doing night classes for everything. But the food we put on the table is far more important than a lot of the skills you learn you learn in a in a day class. So it is a full day. It starts at nine o'clock and it ends at five o'clock. Whenever you arrive there in the morning you have the pig, the full pig there I presume, the yeah. dead pig. We have the full pig there. We do a meet and a greet with people. The last time we had um, John McKenna from the um, McKenna Guides. He's we what we would call the godfather and the driving force behind a lot of the food industry in Ireland. He's himself and Sally are running fantastic organization down there in West Cork and they came to to see what we had to offer and were impressed. We go, we do everything from the primal boning, cutting, um, knife skills. The end objective is that you bring someone in who's interested in food, in meat, in pork and that you you send them away knowing the the skills required, knowing the techniques that they'll that are involved, that they'll be able to do it on the kitchen table the next time. If they're killing a pig, two pigs, take away one side, and they, they will, they'll have a basic grounding in the, um, in the skills. So if I have pigs at home myself, what do I need to do to, to slaughter the pig, first of all? Um, you have to have them ready. Um, you bring them up to about seven months. Some of the boutique breeds, like Gloucestershire Old Spots and the... 
the um, the rare breeds wouldn't be very suitable for the majority of people because of fat content and, and finishing. A lot of the pigs we would use would be quality assured, free range where possible. So to come down to, to breed, feed and getting them, getting them slaughtered. We've had people ring us up and they're looking, they have four pigs and they want to make sausages out of the entire four pigs. That's all they want to make out so of it because they don't understand what other things that they can make they don't have, They don't have a grasp of the diversity. You've got bacon, you've got sausages, you've got pudding, you've got fresh pork, you've got your hams for Christmas. So those pigs would have died for no no real reason. Do you know, they, they wouldn't have got um, justification in their in their their purpose. So you're educating people that there's the cheek and the trotters and all of the bits can be used? All the bits can be used. Out of the pig's head, we're making um, a terrine-style product, which is basically salt, pepper, small bit of blood, and all the, all the meat off the head. There's no... There's no wheats. It's everything off the head. It's complete head meat. That's a product that we're making here and exporting to Germany, but it's an Italian recipe. So you show people that. We'd be showing people the pudding, the common housewife's tale is it's made up of the lesser cuts. It's not. It's only as good. Your product is only as good as the integrity of the, the ingredients. We'd be showing people all that. The trotters, you got the... The head meat, you've got terrines, stuff like that. The very, very basics. Like everyone knows pork chops and everyone knows rashers, but it's how to make them, how to get the, the right cure, how to get the right finish and showing people behind the scenes, really. And are these pigs that you rear yourselves? No, we don't rear them. We have enough, um, we have enough on our plate without going home to a 6 oh. And if somebody is interested in keeping pigs, is there any particular type of pig that you would advise them to start off with? I'd advise them to start off, you've got Duroc, Landrace, any cross of those two. Um, the, the fancy breeds like the, the old spots or, or stuff like that, they, they can finish. You'd finish with a, sometimes when you're starting out, you could finish with an inch and a half of fat. Now, is that not a good thing? Is that not tasty? The fat is tasty. My grandmother used to call it white meat. She said, son, there's no such thing as fat. It's white meat. So eat it. And we used to eat it. But that was, that was a butcher's wise point of view, that everything was, everything was saleable. The, um, like the, the fats, the impression, the, the attitude towards fats has completely changed in the last few years. Before we were told, eat no fat meat. Now we're told that saturated fats are causing all the, all the problem. But still, for the majority of people, too much fat is is not what they want. For for what you'd be putting on the plate in front of kids or in front of the majority of people, you'd want a nice a nice finish, not not too fatty. When you go home at the end of the day, then are you going home with a nice shopping bag full of goodies? You'll be going home with some nice goodies. You'll be going home with the pudding that the Queen had in Dublin Castle. Some of the sausages that we'll make on the day, people will bring home some curing salts, so they'll be able to do their own bacon in the fridge. All they need to do is just add pork. It does exactly as it says in the tin. You you rub it in, you put it into the fridge. It's a dry curing method. There's also a nitrite-free method, which is a bioorganically cured bacon. It's no no nitrates, no nitrites, none of the bad stuff that we have in us. It's um it's a black bacon for all intensive purposes. So you you try and send people away. You send them with the notes. You send them with the plenty of photos, plenty of questions. Like you be trying to give everyone um a feel for what they want out of the day. So if you have a chef, they're looking for something completely different out of from someone who has a market stall in a farmer's market, which we had the last time. You'd have people who'd be looking to get a niche product that they can sell. They might have a black pudding recipe at home that could be from their grandmother. And they're all skills that have to be brought back in. Like those those recipes, if, if that man just doesn't make it, they're lost. They're lost forever. I totally agree with you. Yeah. So it's a great opportunity to perpetuate some of those recipes that are in the family Mm, kitchen drawer maybe on the scrap of paper they're, they're in every family um, like everyone every family would have a brown bread recipe traditionally they would have they would have probably a pudding recipe as well and it'd be different here in West Limerick as it would be in Cantork or it would in North Kerry they'd be completely different it'd be but none is necessarily better or worse but trying to bring those out of people and if they have them encourage them to use it 
You mentioned there about the black pudding that was part of the menu for the Queen. Was that when Ross Lewis cooked for her? Ross Lewis did the menu for her. Um, He would be a great champion of our stuff in Chapter 1 in Dublin. He was making up the state state menu and he contacted us, said he wanted to showcase the best of the Irish produce and he, he used our pudding in the canapes. The Queen was mad about it. She was texting for weeks after. I'd say so. That's great. And you get a lunch on Sunday when you're there. What does the lunch consist of? The lunch is uh, a full suckling pig cooked off this Sunday. We served in a local restaurant where we'll have um, our own black pudding starter. We'll have a suckling pig and a dessert to be food on the go. It's hungry stuff standing there, getting stuck into making black pudding, boning, boning sides of pork, knife skills. Well, it sounds like a fantastic lunch. So, so it does. It's a full day. It's 195 euros per person, but you go away with great skills. You go away with a goodie bag full of of produce. You get a lovely lunch. And if people want to book, they need to go onto your website. They can go onto our website, jackmccarthy.ie. It's it's a full day. Um, We'll be certifying it this time so people will go away with a certificate. After completion, they will have a fairly in-depth, intensive day. But all, all the notes will be there to back it up. We encourage people to ask photo or take photos, ask plenty of questions to get everything out of us. This is the third one we've ran. Um, we ran one about two years ago and between the jigs and the reels, we just didn't get back to it until January. Um, so it's, I'd say until autumn time, this will be, be the final one. Take the summer off. Hopefully see Corker Limerick winning the All-Ireland. And... Um, back in the autumn then just in time for the Christmas hams exactly yeah people people are like it takes seven months to rear a pig from from birth to table so anyone that's getting pigs now in, in April perfect time for the Christmas ham so if they want to come to Kentork this Sunday we'll show them everything that they'll need a great idea Tim thanks so much for coming in tonight to tell me about it and all the best with it thank you very much cheers chin chin salut schleinter Great to chat to Tim and if you venture to Canturk this weekend to do the course, be sure to let me know how you get on. Time to turn our attention to some other events now and there's a five weeks advanced cookery course due to start in County Kerry at Mark Doe's Cookery School Just Cooking or if that's too intense, how about a taste of Thailand? Visit justcooking.ie for info. Hook and Ladder are in the cities of Limerick and Waterford and also will be hosting a Thai workshop as well as a tapas night and cooking with fish. Everything you need to know can be found on hookandladder.ie. Entertaining in style and a simple dinner party are examples of what the Tannery Cookery School in Dungarvan County Waterford has to offer. Check out tannery.ie and I'm told that early booking is advisable because their courses are very popular. In City West, outside Dublin, Teens in the Kitchen and Mediterranean Cooking are on the menu. Visit melagallery.ie for details. The School of Food in Kilkenny has an array of courses coming up, examples being an introduction to beekeeping, poultry keeping and sports nutrition. Visit townoffood.com for info. If you have an event coming up, it might be a cookery demo, a product launch or even a fundraiser. Be sure to send me details to s.noonan at live.ie and I'll be only too delighted to give them a shout out here on the diary on best possible taste. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks so much for your company and to all of tonight's guests. Ron Forrestal, Morris O'Brien, Ida Ryan... Martina Calvi and Tim McCarthy. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com food and drink show with the dashes between each of the food and drink show words. I'll be back at the same time next week, all being well. Until then, have a great week and bon appetit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit.